Well, it's a real pleasure to introduce the chairman of the Cato Institute, uh, Bob Levy. Uh, he joined Cato as a senior fellow in constitutional studies. He had a very successful career in business. It's laid out in the bio, but I'll just mention a couple of remarkable features. Uh, Bob uh, did a PhD in business. He went, founded his own firm, was very successful, early days of providing financial services and uh, data uh, through computers and managed to sell as the internet was coming online. And then at the old, old age of 50, I think it was, said, what am I going to do now? So he went to law school, got a law degree, uh, clerked with uh, two federal judges, was an intern at the Institute for Justice. And just to, for all the people in this room, the model intern, and one of the lawyers there said it was a little odd that my intern had a PhD, was a very successful businessman, and was a lot older than I was, and yet would come to me and say, do you have any work for me to do? I'll take care of that, and I'll do that. Those are the kinds of people who change the world. Two things that he's also been very active in is thinking about the law. He and Clark Neely from IJ were the architects of our successful Second Amendment effort at the Supreme Court, sat down and said, we want this to be done in a clean way. We don't want a public defender coming up and having a sentence reduction for someone who robbed a 7-Eleven or something, saying, well, they also got additional sentence for illegal possession of a gun. We want this to be litigated on the basis of the Second Amendment, assembled a team of plaintiffs. I was very fortunate to be one of them. And he paid for the whole thing himself, so no one would say it was the gun lobby or some outside for force. It was just Bob Levy. And even I offered to chip in, and he said, thanks, Tom, but I have to be able to say I alone have paid for this, not me and four other people. He did it because it was the right thing to do, not because he was a gun owner or a gun nut. He's a nut, but not a gun nut. Um, but it was the right thing to do. And then later on this issue, he thought very hard about the gay marriage issue. He listened to both sides. He made up his own mind and decided that he was in favor of eliminating the bans on people of the same gender being married. His wife assures me he also had no special interest uh, in this case. It was just the right thing to do because he thought about it. And that's one of the things that's remarkable about Bob Levy is his high degree of personal integrity. And as I mentioned um, the other day, any time I have ever found myself disagreeing with Bob, I've sat down and thought very hard, what mistake have I made? It's a pleasure to welcome the chairman of the Cato Institute. Uh, let me try the mic first. Can everybody in the back uh, hear what? Uh, <laughs> it's great to be with you. Um, it's great to be back in D.C. I was born here and uh, lived here for. Uh, 64 years. Nowadays, I spend uh, five months a year, including right now, in Asheville, North Carolina, and seven months a year in Naples, Florida. <clears throat> of course, that doesn't mean I'm totally divorced from public policy. Um, in fact, this past December, it was North Carolina that was uh, high profile in the public policy arena because that's 
especially Charlotte, North Carolina, where they had the Democratic um, presidential convention. And the highlight of the convention, of course, was Bill Clinton's <clears throat> speech. The audience loved him, sort of hanging on every word. And meanwhile, Hillary is like 10,000 miles away in China. We don't even know if she saw the speech. And when, uh, when Hillary was asked, did you catch Bill in Charlotte? She said, Charlotte who? Of course, she's now at the top of the uh, list of 2016 Democratic uh, presidential candidates. Nobody quite knows how her candidacy is going to be affected uh, by her relationship with, uh, with her husband. Um, and apparently, he's still polling uh, pretty well. Uh, when the women in Washington, D.C. were asked if they would have sexual relations with Bill Clinton, 76% of them said, not again. <laughs> Today, however, we are not here to talk about the, uh, <clears throat> the Clintons, but about the Supreme Court and how it has uh, subverted the Constitution. Um, I'm going to talk about a few of the cases that, um, <clears throat> that were responsible for subverting the Constitution. But before I do that, I want to set a sort of a framework with a few comments on liberals and conservatives and how their views of the Constitution and public policy differ from the uh, libertarian views that uh, we have here at uh, uh, the Cato Institute. Of course, when I talk about libertarians, I'm not talking about the libertarian political party. I'm talking about libertarianism as a political philosophy devoted to private property, uh, free markets, individual liberty, and, and limited uh, government. So as you know, we don't endorse here at Cato, we don't endorse candidates, we don't endorse political parties. Uh, and as you're soon going to hear, we're critical of the Democrats and the Republicans, as well as the liberals and the conservatives. What we do have is a consistent, I'd call it minimalist view about the proper role of government. Uh, so conservatives uh, agree with us on, on some issues. They tend to be domestic, economic, regulatory, tax, fiscal issues. And liberals will agree with us on other issues. They tend to be uh, the social issues, a more liberalized immigration program, uh, legalization of drugs, uh, a non-interventionist uh, foreign policy. Um, now, how is it that we can agree with liberals sometimes and conservatives other times? Does that mean that libertarians have a philosophically inconsistent uh, view? It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is that liberals and conservatives have a philosophically uh, inconsistent view. And to illustrate that, I want to suggest to you that the structure of our federal system, indeed the structure of the U.S. Uh, Constitution, can be, uh, I think, pretty fully captured by looking at the final two amendments in the Bill of Rights. I'm talking, of course, about the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. Uh, the Tenth Amendment tells us that the federal government is limited to the powers that are enumerated in the Constitution. Uh, for example, the power to coin money, the power to uh, establish post offices, regulate uh, interstate commerce. And it goes on to say that the powers that are not enumerated, not delegated to the federal government, are reserved to the states, or depending on the provisions of state law and state constitutions, they're reserved directly uh, to the people. Conservatives and libertarians generally agree on that pretty tightly constrained view of, uh, of federal uh, power, but there's, uh, there are a couple of key exceptions. Uh, the first is that uh, conservatives, uh, but not libertarians, are willing to federalize, and by that I mean assign responsibility to the federal government, a significant amount of both uh, criminal and civil law. If you want an example in the criminal law area, take a look at our totally uh, feckless war on drugs for which there is no constitutional authorization. Uh, there are a few crimes set out in the Constitution, uh, counterfeiting, treason, piracy, and that's about it. 
and all other criminal laws is traditionally left to uh, the states. But the conservatives believe that because the war on drugs is important to prosecute, that they're going to overlook the fact that there's no constitutional authority for the federal government to be involved in that area. If you want an example in the civil law area, take a look at the healthcare debate that's been unfolding and the debate about whether uh, we should reform our medical malpractice laws. Now, I happen to believe that reforming the medical malpractice law is probably a good idea. But the threshold question for a libertarian is where in the Constitution would it be authorized for the federal government to get involved in reforming medical malpractice laws? And of course, if you ask the conservative, he would say, well, it's a regulation of interstate commerce. <clears throat> Those of you who know anything about malpractice, you know typically it's a patient who lives in a state suing the doctor that lives in the same state about an injury that occurred in the state where both of them uh, live. So it's a little bit difficult to imagine that morphing into uh, interstate commerce. But again, because conservatives believe that uh, the medical malpractice uh, area really needs reform, uh, they are willing to overlook the fact that there is no constitutional uh, authority. And when there is no constitutional authority, the federal government has to step aside and, and leave the matter up to the states or leave the matter up to the private parties. That's the libertarian principle. Of course, that's not what has transpired today. The federal government has immersed itself into everything ranging from uh, public schools to hurricane relief to welfare, uh, retirement systems, medical care, family planning, housing, uh, even aid to the arts. Take a look through the Constitution, see if you can find anything uh, that would possibly uh, justify federal involvement in uh, aid uh, to the arts. So that's one area where libertarians and conservatives differ about powers of government. A second area is that conservatives are far, far less anxious than libertarians about concentrating a lot of power in one particular branch of government. And I mean the executive branch, and in particular, this post-9-11 trade-off between uh, civil liberties and uh, national uh, securities. Libertarians remind their conservative friends that when you concentrate a lot of power in one branch of government, that threatens the notion of the separation of powers, which has been a cornerstone of the Constitution uh, for two and a quarter centuries. So that the administration, and sorry to say, I mean most particularly uh, the George W. Bush administration, and now extended by the Obama administration, uh, the administration may not by itself unilaterally set the rules. That's not an executive function, that's a legislative function. And while the administration may prosecute infractions, it may not, after the fact, determine uh, guilt or innocence, and it certainly may not determine whether its own activities have comported with the dictates of the Constitution. Because that isn't an executive function, that's a uh, judicial uh, function. So. That's the powers of government perspective uh, grounded on the 10th Amendment and the separation of powers doctrine. Now, I mentioned also the 9th Amendment, which doesn't talk about powers. It talks about uh, rights, and specifically the 9th Amendment provides that the enumeration of certain rights doesn't mean that those are all the rights we have. Uh, we have lots of other rights that were not enumerated in the Constitution that we had before the Constitution was written and before the uh, United States government was, uh, was formed, and that safeguard imposes another powerful discipline on federal behavior. Because what it means is, even if the federal government abides by the dictates of the Constitution with respect to the 10th Amendment, that is, it only exercises the powers that are specifically enumerated, the 9th Amendment goes on to say that even if the federal government limits itself to its enumerated powers, those powers may not ex be exercised in a manner that violates our rights. 
And if you want to know which rights can't be violated, the Ninth Amendment instructs it's not only the rights that are expressly written in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, like speech and religion and press and protection against unreasonable searches. It's all of those, to be sure. But in addition, it's the boundless list of unenumerated rights, the rights that we had before the Constitution was written. Indeed, if you read the Ninth Amendment, it says rights retained by the people. And of course, uh, you cannot uh, retain uh, what you didn't already, uh, already have. Now, <clears throat> there are a number of rights that libertarians believe included in this list, and they would, en they would encompass, for example, the right to gamble, or for that matter, uh, the right to smoke uh, marijuana. Now, notice that the presumptions underlying the Ninth and Tenth Amendment are exactly opposite one another. If you capture that, you capture the entire structure of the Constitution. The Tenth Amendment says if the federal government uh, doesn't, uh, if the power isn't enumerated in the Constitution, the federal government doesn't have it. Uh, the Ninth Amendment, just the reverse. It says merely because the right isn't enumerated in the Constitution doesn't mean that individuals don't have it. Individuals have this long list of unenumerated rights which they retain, predating uh, the Constitution. So if you wanted to identify a single constitutional provision that, that separates the conservatives uh, from the libertarians, it would be uh, the Ninth Amendment. Uh, conservatives treat the Ninth Amendment, and this is a, a memorable term coined by Robert Bork, former just, ju Judge Robert Bork. He said the Ninth Amendment is, is simply an ink blot. It should be ignored. Nobody knows what it means. It's as if somebody spilled ink on the portion of the Ninth Amendment that would have identified these unenumerated rights that libertarians tell us uh, we have. Of course, libertarians don't believe that uh, the Ninth Amendment is an inkblot. They believe that it means something and that it refers specifically to our natural rights, uh, the rights that we had by nature, pre-government, and that we still retain. Now, what kind of rights are these? These are all of the so-called negative rights. Sounds like a pejorative term, but of course it isn't. A negative right is simply a right that doesn't impose, if it's exercised, it doesn't impose an affirmative obligation on anyone else. By contrast, a positive right, or what really ought to be called an entitlement, is something which, if exercised, does impose uh, affirmative obligations on, on other people. So to, to sort of to concretize that, to put some flesh on that, uh, consider the right to the pursuit of happiness. That's a negative right. I can pursue happiness. I don't need your help. Just stay out of my way. Don't exercise force or fraud against me. But suppose I had a right to happiness. Uh, now, not just the pursuit of happiness, but the actual right to attain, to realize a state of happiness. And bear in mind, if I have a right, it presupposes I have a remedy. That is, I can do something about it if the right's violated. If you have a right and you don't have a remedy, it's as if you didn't have uh, the right at all. So if I have an enforceable right uh, to happiness, to, to be happy, uh, that does impose affirmative obligations on each of you, because at a minimum, it means you can't do anything to make me unhappy. Uh, and if you did, I could go to court and get an injunction to stop you uh, from doing that sort of thing. And of course, that would interfere with your own right uh, to the pursuit of, um, of, uh, of, of happiness. Now, the positive rights that we hear about are not these abstract rights like the right to happiness, but they're really a subset of the right to happiness. They're the right to welfare, the right to medical care, to housing, uh, to a minimum wage, and, uh, and on and on. And these are, of course, integral to the liberal view about the proper role of government. And since I've been a critic of the conservatives, let me be an equal opportunity um, uh, critic. Liberals, of course, embrace big government. Why? Because they embrace positive rights. And what's the link between those two? 
positive rights, as I've mentioned, are rights which when they exercise, if they're exercised, they impose obligations on other people. Uh, well, occasionally the people on whom the obligations are being imposed don't like the idea. Occasionally, I would prefer to keep my resources for myself and my family rather than uh, turn it over for, to somebody else so they can buy medical care or, or housing or you name it. So what do you do when there is an objection to the imposition of positive rights? You bring in the only entity in our system that's authorized to use force, and that is the government. So if you embrace uh, positive rights, uh, then necessarily you embrace uh, coercion. And if you embrace coercion, it means you embrace the coercive entity in our system, which is the government. Now, liberals who do embrace positive rights are strangely, I think, paradoxically, in this post-9-11 environment, uh, making an exception. So while the left embraces positive rights when it comes to our retirement system, our welfare system, our public school system, our private economy, why hasn't the left's healthy distrust of, uh, of uh, big government, I, I'm sorry, distrust of, uh, <clears throat> of uh, embrace of positive rights, that is the recourse to big government in order to enforce positive rights, why hasn't this extended to support for big government when it comes to this area of civil liberties versus uh, national security? Uh, why can't the liberals see past uh, two particular agencies of government when they're worried about too much big government. When the big government is exercised by the EPA or by any of the other innumerable agencies of government, that seems to be perfectly okay. But if big government is exercised by two particular agencies, uh, liberals are concerned about it, and those agencies are the Defense Department and the Justice Department. And uh, ironically, these are the two agencies which are indisputably charged with a leg legitimate function of government, and that is to protect us against uh, domestic and foreign uh, uh, predators. So imagine if the Congress were to delegate to the Justice Department uh, the job of uh, crafting regulations regarding the trade-off between national security and civil liberties, and it said to the Justice Department, here's your guideline, keep us safe uh, from the terrorists. Folks on the left would be apoplectic, and they would have every reason to be, because it's not the job of the Justice Department uh, to be crafting regulations. That's the job of the US Congress. But when the same Congress delegates to the Environmental Protection Agency the job of crafting regulations regarding the trade-off between economic growth and, a clean, and clean air, and it says to the EPA, here's your guide, uh, guideline, keep us safe from the pollutants, folks on the left uh, applaud enthusiastically. So could it be that, uh, that uh, pollutants are a greater threat than terrorists? Not likely. What is more likely is that the left has this selective indignation about uh, about the role of government, and that reflects an inconsistency in the liberal mindset, much as there is an inconsistency in the conservative mindset about the proper uh, role of government. And of course, that is the foundational question. Uh, what is the proper role of government? And I'm suggesting to you that in examining that role, the Constitution can be viewed through these two prisms. Uh, the powers of government prism, that's the Tenth Amendment, and the rights of individuals prism, which is the Ninth Amendment, and if you want to encapsulate the libertarian view in a nutshell, is it, it's the libertarian's view, uh, the powers of government very narrowly and the rights of individuals very broadly. And that, of course, was precisely the vision of the framers, and I think it's fair to say <clears throat> that the framers were, um, were libertarians. So with that backdrop, let me turn to some of these Supreme Court cases that have uh, 
I think, uh, subverted the Constitution. And interestingly, um, uh, it's been 222 years since the, uh, the Bill of Rights was ratified. Um, and since that time, the Constitution has been amended only 17 times. Uh, that's quite extraordinary. Uh, there are other countries that have had 17 constitutions uh, over that 220-some year period. We've had 17 amendments. Uh, so why have there been so few changes? Uh, the framers could never have envisioned <clears throat> this 21st century world in which, we, uh, in which we live, and yet we've only had 17 amendments. Well, there are lots of reasons, but I think three of them are particularly relevant to today's uh, uh, conversation. Two of the reasons are good ones, one's not so good. Uh, the first good reason is that the framers were geniuses, and they had a vision of liberty that's every bit as relevant uh, today as it was back in, in 1791. Uh, the second good reason is that in exercising their genius, they had the foresight to make it pretty difficult to amend the Constitution. Uh, so two-thirds of uh, both houses have to propose amendments. They have to be ratified by three-fourths of the states. Uh, that's a pretty tough hurdle. And so not surprisingly, uh, we've had only a few amendments. And, and as a result, we've had a very stable uh, system of government. The bad reason that we haven't had very many amendments is that the Supreme Court has managed to accomplish through the back door what could not have been accomplished through the front door using the prescribed amendment process. So essentially, uh, the Supreme Court has uh, rewritten the Constitution and made it into something that it was not intended uh, to be. And so that's what I'd like to illustrate with just a handful of these cases. And I've picked these because they have particular relevance to debates that are unfolding <clears throat> as, we, uh, as we speak. So let me start with a case involving the power to tax, <clears throat> or what sometimes is called the General Welfare Clause. There is an express power <clears throat> in Article 1, Section 8. It says <clears throat> the federal government has the power to tax in order to provide uh, for the general welfare. Now, what's the scope of this power? What's it really mean? It was tested back in 1937 in a case called Helvering v. Davis, and that involved whether or not the Social Security system was, was authorized by the Constitution. Um, now, you have to think like a judge. Um, the issue wasn't whether Social Security is a good idea or whether it's actuarially sound, whether guys like me getting their like to get their check uh, every month. That's not the issue. The issue for a judge is where in the Constitution do we find authorization uh, for the Social Security system? And if you ask uh, the proponents of uh, Social Security, they said it was the power to tax, to impose a Social Security tax in order to provide for the general welfare. And back in the beginning, this was a battle. The interpretation of the General Welfare Clause was a battle between uh, Madison and, and Hamilton. Hamilton's view was that the tax, in order to provide for the general welfare, was an extra added power of Congress. Over and above all the other powers that were enumerated, mostly in Article I, Section 8, in addition, said Hamilton, <clears throat> the government had the power to tax in order to provide for the general welfare. Madison disagreed. He said, that can't be the case, because just about everything can be characterized as providing for the general welfare. And of course, in retrospect, we know that that's true. Just about everything has been characterized in that fashion. So Madison went even further. He said, not only isn't the General Welfare Clause an extra added power of Congress, but it's actually an impediment on Congress's exercise of its other powers. What it really means, says Madison, is that in exercising the other powers that are listed in the Constitution, 
Congress has to jump through another hoop. It can only exercise that limited list of powers in a manner that protects and promotes the general welfare and not the welfare of what Madison called factions and what we today call the special interests. <clears throat> the Supreme Court took a look at this and basically said, Hamilton wins, Madison loses. And that opened up uh, the floodgates through which the redistributive state was ready to pour, taking money from some people, giving it to other people without any uh, constitutional uh, constraints. And of course, we saw this um, carried out in the Obamacare decision, uh, where Chief Justice uh, Roberts decided that Obamacare was constitutionally authorized, not as a regulation of interstate commerce, not as an exercise of the necessary and proper clause, but as an exercise of the taxing power, the assessment of a tax in order to provide for the general welfare. And he said this, even though <clears throat> the statute said it was a penalty, not a tax. The original version of the legislation had included the word tax and it was stripped from the legislation, replaced with the word penalty. Elsewhere in the legislation, the words tax is used, so Congress certainly knew how to say tax when it meant tax and it knew how to say penalty when it meant penalty. And if you look at the portion of the legislation that <clears throat> says where in the Constitution is this legislation authorized, there is no mention whatsoever of the taxing power. It says it's authorized by the Commerce Clause. And of course, President Obama has, had assured us uh, ad nauseum that there were to be no new taxes on the middle class. Nonetheless, with a, a wave of the wand, Chief Justice Roberts decided that this penalty was indeed uh, a tax. And that was the basis on which Obamacare was deemed to be constitutional. And this was all opened up with the case back in 1937 called Helvering v. Davis, when the expansive power to tax in order to provide for the general welfare uh, was first uh, determined by uh, the Supreme Court. Now, I mentioned to you that the real basis for Obamacare was supposed to have been the Commerce Clause, the right and power of the Congress to regulate interstate commerce. And the seeds of our problem with the Commerce Clause go back to 1942 in a case that you've probably all heard of. It's a case, an infamous case, uh, called Wickard v. Uh, Filburn. And the issue in that case was whether Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce could be extended to things that are not interstate and not commerce. Of course, the, the answer seems to be self-evident, but it wasn't self-evident for the Supreme Court. Mr. Filburn grew wheat on his own farm. He didn't buy it. He grew it. He didn't sell it. He ate it or he gave it to his farm animals, and the Roosevelt administration during the Depression decided that the price of farm products was too low, and the way you increase price is to cut production, so he told Filburn, you gotta stop producing so much. And Filburn said, under what authority is the federal government telling me I can't produce so much? And the Roosevelt administration responded, we're regulating interstate commerce. Filburn predictably replies, well, guess what? There's no interstate, it's all on my farm within one state. I'm not buying it, I'm growing it, I'm not selling it, I'm eating it. The Supreme Court told Filburn he just didn't get it, uh, that if he wasn't out there uh, growing this stuff, he would have had to buy it. And if he wasn't eating everything he grew, he would have had some left over to sell. And so by growing and eating instead of buying and selling, uh, Filburn and all the other folks who were probably doing the same thing he was doing, undoubtedly in the aggregate, had a substantial effect on commerce, some of which would have become interstate uh, commerce. 
So that doctrine, extending the Commerce Clause from regulating interstate commerce to regulating just about anything, <clears throat> opened up another set of floodgates. This is the regulatory <clears throat> state regulating anything and everything under the rubric uh, of the, um, of the um, Commerce Clause. And again, it had its implications, it has its, uh, its um, uh, implications with respect to the Obamacare uh, decision. Uh, in this case, bear in mind the Obamacare decision, even though it authorized Obamacare, was a very positive decision with respect to a couple of other provisions. So it was a glass half empty and half full. Uh, the empty part was the, the affirmation of Obamacare and the bastardized approval of Obamacare under the taxing power. But the court did have some very powerful things to say uh, about uh, the power to regulate interstate commerce. So here's the way the court looked at uh, the power to regulate interstate commerce. And this will give you an idea of what the current framework is with respect to uh, interstate commerce. The power to regulate interstate commerce on its face covers things that are interstate and things that are commerce. So what do we mean by commerce? We mean buying and selling goods. That's what commerce is all about. Well, what about things that are not strictly buying and selling goods and not strictly interstate, but as in Wickard v. Filburn, they are economic acts that in the aggregate probably has a substantial effect on interstate commerce. Well, what's an economic act? It's far broader than just buying and selling. An economic act could be, for example, growing, as in Wickard v. Filburn, consuming, as in Wickard v. Filburn, manufacturing, mining, distributing, and of course, buying and selling. So the economic acts is a superset of commerce. Economic acts are far broader than commerce. And after Wickard v. Filburn, the new rubric was not only can Congress regulate interstate commerce, but also even intrastate acts, as long as they're economic acts, as long as they're growing, mining, manufacturing, distributing, buying, selling, or consuming, <clears throat> economic acts that in the aggregate even though they're intrastate, have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. So that was a rule for 50 years. And then along came another case called United States versus Lopez, which oddly enough involved guns. And the issue in the Lopez case was whether or not federal government could pass a law that says it's illegal to possess a gun within the thousand feet of a school. And the Supreme Court took a look at that and finally drew a line and said, no, this is too far. This is not commerce. This is not an economic act that affects commerce. The mere possession of a gun is a non-economic act. It doesn't involve growing, mining, manufacturing, distributing, buying, selling, consuming. It doesn't involve anything. It's just mere possession. And so the new rubric after United States versus Lopez was Congress can regulate interstate commerce. It can regulate economic acts that have a substantial effect on interstate commerce, even though they're intrastate. But it cannot regulate non economic acts, like the mere possession of a gun. And that's where things stood up until Obamacare. And Obamacare went a step further. Obama, Obamacare proposed a congressional power, a federal power, to regulate, under the Commerce Clause, things that were not acts at all. Because what we're talking about is a penalty for not buying insurance. So if consumers decide not to engage in an act, the federal government claims the authority to regulate them under the Commerce Clause. And the Supreme Court, Chief Justice Roberts, and the other four uh, conservative judges, uh, justices, to their great credit, drew another line in the sand. 
And they said, Congress may not mandate an economic act in order to be then able to regulate that act under the rubric of the Commerce Clause. That is regulatory bootstrapping of the worst sort. And so that's where we now are. <clears throat> Congress can regulate interstate commerce and can regulate economic acts that in the aggregate have a substantial effect on interstate commerce, and all of that flowed from the 1942 case of Wickard v. Uh, Filburn. The next case involves, uh, it's called Whitman versus American Trucking. I could have picked any number of other cases. This is about a doctrine in the Constitution that few of you have heard of, I guess, and even folks who go to law school don't spend much time on this because it's more or less a moribund doctrine. And it's called the non-delegation clause. The very first sentence in the Constitution, it says all legislative power is vested in Congress. Now, why did the framers say that? Well, because, again, I mentioned they were very smart guys, and they knew that if Congress passes an oppressive law uh, that uh, folks don't like, then we have a remedy. We can vote the bums out of office. The problem is that when Congress, Congress occasionally, maybe more than occasionally, passes laws that nobody knows what they mean, uh, or in the case of Obamacare, very few people even read the couple of thousand pages. So they then assign to some regulatory agency, some administrative agency, outside of the legislative branch, the power to flesh out these laws, to regulate, to make rules, to, to put some flesh on that skeleton. Now the voters don't have recourse. We can't vote the bums out of office because these regulatory agencies are not run by elected politicians. They're run by uh, unelected uh, bureaucrats. And if you like this concept of delegation of legislative authority, even though the Constitution explicitly forbids it, says all legislative power is vested in Congress, if you like this delegation, then you will, of course, be a big fan of TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or what we've come to call the, the bailout, where basically uh, the, the, the Congress turned over U.S. lawmaking power when it comes to the financial markets uh, to the executive branch, to Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, and then his successor, uh, Treasury Secretary uh, Timothy uh, Geithner. So Paulson says, without any congressional guidance at all, uh, we're going to solve the financial crisis by purchasing toxic assets from banks that are too big to fail. And then within a few months, he changes his mind. Still without congressional input, he said, no, we're not going to purchase toxic assets. What we're going to do is we're going to inject capital directly into these banks. We're going to become shareholders uh, in these banks. And then when Geithner came along, he decided that what it ought to be called was a public-private partnership. And whenever you hear that term, you want to grab hold of your wallets. And because what it means is that to the extent private, uh, profits materialize, they go to the private sector, namely these big banks that are too big to fail. And whenever losses occur, those losses are public. They're socialized. Uh, they're borne by uh, the taxpayers. And that's exactly what happened. And along the way, of course, the administration expropriates $180 billion to bail out insurance giant AIG and a few tens of billions of dollars to bail out the auto companies, uh, despite express pronouncements by Congress that there were to be no uh, automobile uh, bailouts. So what have the courts said about all of this? Uh, essentially, the courts have said, yes, we understand that the first sentence of the Constitution, right after the preamble, says that all legislative power is vested in Congress, but, you know, we have to make an exception. Uh, because governing is a very complicated business nowadays, 
And we really do need the help of these administrative agencies who have a lot of expertise in Washington, D.C. Bear in mind, there are only 320 of these administrative agencies in D.C. that have rulemaking power now. 320. So we really do need their help, uh, says Congress. And so the exception is this. Even though the Constitution says you can't do it, we're going to allow it to be done. Legislative power can be delegated under one circumstance. Congress has to craft what's called an intelligible principle so that the agency knows how to flesh out the details of the law. So ask yourself, what is the intelligible principle uh, that governed the bailout, that governed TARP? Of course, nobody knows, uh, least of all the taxpayers that, uh, that had afoot uh, the bill. The intelligible principle seemed to be make things better, uh, which is not a coherent guide to... Uh, uh, to action. Now, this is not a minor problem. Uh, with a House of Representatives controlled by the Republicans and a Congress that therefore is unwilling uh, to, uh, to uh, implement the Obama agenda, uh, that agenda, he believes, can be implemented without the help uh, of Congress. And so Washington's alphabet agencies are now going to be operating and are operating uh, overtime. So we have Health and Human Services that uh, are, are regulating health care. We have the FCC that's passing regulations regarding uh, the Internet. We have this new agency, the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, making a lot of mischief under the Dodd-Frank uh, Act. And to grasp the scope of that problem, uh, consider that the federal agencies, the 320-some of them, now dwarf Congress when it comes to making rules that control what we can do. Uh, those rules are codified. They're published in a book. It's called the Code of Federal Regulations, CFR. That book is now 200 bound volumes. 200 bound volumes. It is six times the size of the United States Code, which contains all of the laws passed by Congress. So this non-delegation principle has become a huge burden with a one-way ratchet toward bigger and bigger uh, government. Next case is about campaign finance reform. Um, you've all heard about the, civil, the Citizens United case, a recent case, but the real seeds of this problem were laid back in 2003 with a case called McConnell versus Federal Election Commission. Campaign reformers had this quixotic idea that money and politics shouldn't mix, and so they passed the McCain-Feingold Campaign Reform Act. <clears throat> and we know how well that worked because six years, it was passed in 2002. Six years later, we had a presidential election, 2008, during which more money was spent than in any election in the history of the universe. Until, of course, four, four years later in 2012, when we had yet uh, more money than that. So McCain-Feingold ultimately became uh, a statute, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, BCRA, or BICRA, and it was challenged and in this case in 2003 called McConnell, as in Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, <clears throat> versus FEC, the Federal Elections Commission. And in that case, the FEC decided, uh, I'm sorry, the Supreme Court decided that political speech by corporations and labor unions get less protection than, for example, gangster rap, pornography, or flag burning. All of those are protected, as they should be, by the First Amendment. But if a corporation publishes a book, let's say Random House publishes a book, and somewhere within that book, 600 pages or so, there are three words, vote for Obama. 
or vote against Obama, that that book would be violating BICRA and could be punished criminally. The book could be banned. Of course, we're not supposed to be about banning books in the United States, and that's one reason the Supreme Court decided to take a second look at this, and they did take a second look in the case called uh, Citizens United. And happily, in January of 2010, just three and a half years ago, uh, the court overturned two of McCain-Feingold's very worst uh, restrictions on corporate and union political expression. The first was this, this one that I just mentioned, that no publication funded by a corporation or a labor union uh, can expressly advocate the election or defeat of a clearly identified uh, federal candidate. That was overturned as a violation of free speech. The second provision of overturn was just about, just about as bad, and that is that no corporate or union expenditure could be used for an advertisement or any sort of broadcast that even named a candidate. You didn't have to say vote for or vote against. You could not even name a candidate who was running for office within 60 days of a general election or 30 days of a uh, primary. The case involved a movie called Hillary the Movie, and it was critical of Hillary Clinton, who at the time uh, was a presidential uh, candidate. And under the law, under McCain-Feingold, under BICRA, it was okay for theaters to show this movie. Uh, it was okay to buy the movie on DVD. But the producers of the movie, Citizens United, since they were a corporation, could not advertise that the movie was available to be seen. And they could not advertise that the DVD was available to be bought. Uh, Justice Kennedy, to his credit, for a narrowly divided 5-4 co uh, uh, court, correctly recognized, first, corporations and labor unions are not one monolithic block that speak with one voice. Typically, corporations are on one side of an issue and labor unions are on another side. Even within the corporate community, you have situations like Whole Foods being a vigorous opponent of Obamacare. Uh, Walmart being a vis vigorous supporter uh, of Obamacare. So there are countervailing power blocks that weigh in on, on these issues. The media has misrepresented this case in two important respects. The first was <clears throat> that they characterized the case as being about whether corporations should be treated as persons. Now that's an interesting legal question about which there's a great deal of scholarship, but it had nothing to do uh, with the Citizens United case. The Citizens United case was not whether corporations or unions could be treated as persons, but whether persons, like those of us in this room, have the right to pool our resources and express our political views in any venue that we wish, whether it be a club, a partnership, an LLC, a corporation, a labor union, or you name it. It's about the right of individuals, not the right of corporations. The second misrepresentation and you read this just about every day in the New York Times editorial page, was that this was open up the floodgates and we'd have this spigot and corporate and union money would go pouring into the coffers of the campaign candidates. Completely untrue. Under current law, after Citizens United, it is still illegal for any corporation or labor union to contribute a nickel to the campaigns of various candidates or even to political parties. But what they can do now is fund advertisements, independent expenditures that advocate the election or defeat of clearly identified uh, candidates. The proper answer for these large expenditures 
if we're concerned about these large expenditures, is either more speech, that is, let's have more speech so that all views are representatives, represented, or if that doesn't work, then what we need is a constitutional amendment. We can't treat the First Amendment as just as some kind of loophole. It's written on tissue paper that we can ignore if we find it to be inconvenient. And as for money, it is just a symptom of the underlying problem. The underlying problem is overweening government that has wormed its way into just about every aspect of our daily lives. So no wonder the politicians uh, aren't, are, are, are curried for favors uh, by the lobbyists and the big corporate and union interests. They go running to Washington, D.C. because Washington, D.C. is where all the favors are dispensed, where all the largesse is disseminated. So if you want to get money out of politics, if you want to avoid the problem of big money, avoid the problem of big government. If the politicians don't have the favors to dole out, the uh, corporate and union interests won't be seeking uh, these uh, favors. We need to restore the fam framers' notion uh, of a government of delegated and enumerated uh, and, of course, limited uh, federal uh, powers. Finally, let me talk about a case you've probably uh, heard of, and that is a case about eminent domain in the, in the city of New London, Connecticut. <clears throat> it's a case called Kelo versus City of New London. It was litigated by the Institute for Justice, a good friend of the Cato Institute, and uh, I'm on the Institute of Justice board, happily so, proud to be associated with them. They are a public interest law firm, sort of the ACLU of the libertarian right. And I encourage you, if you don't know about IJ, <clears throat> take a look at IJ.org, and you'll find out uh, more about them. So uh, the Institute for Justice litigated the uh, Kelo case and lost. It was a horrible uh, defeat. <clears throat> Mrs. Kelo owned a cherished home in New London, Connecticut. She wanted to stay uh, in that home. But a private developer goes to the city of New London and says, you know, I'd like Mrs. Kelo's home. And I'd like the home of all her neighbors. And the city says, for what purpose? And the private developer says, well, you know, I have some contacts at Pfizer, and I'm going to get them to build a pharmaceutical plant. And in the process, we're going to, of course, put up a bunch of office buildings and a bunch of hotels. And this is going to expand the tax base. It's going to create an awful lot of jobs. Well, when they asked Mrs. Kilo about it, she wasn't wild about the idea, and neither was her neighbors. And they said they were going to condemn the government of New London said, well, we want to create jobs and expand the tax base. So we're going to condemn your property under eminent domain. And Mrs. Kelo said, well, what about the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, where it says that you can't do that unless the property is being condemned for public use? When you think about public use, you think about roads or military bases or some sort of uh, government uh, facility. You don't think about turning the land over to a private developer so that he can work out a deal with Pfizer for a pharmaceutical plant or office buildings, or hotels. Again, the Supreme Court weighs in and basically tells Mrs. Kelo that, you know, it says public use, but we're not going to read it that way. <clears throat> the Constitution may say public use, but we're going to read it to mean public benefit, public purpose. And for sure, expanding the tax base and creating jobs does create a public benefit and serve a public purpose, even if it's not a public use. Of course, if that's going to be the criteria, public benefit, public purpose, then nobody's home is safe uh, from the government bulldozers. Because anybody's home, if converted into commercial or, or industrial use, would expand the tax base. And anybody's home converted to those uses uh, might create uh, some jobs. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court went ahead. 
And Mrs. Hilo, Kilo's home and her neighbor's homes were all uh, condemned, and they were all um, relocated. Now, fortunately, it is an epilogue. Uh, thanks to a media campaign by the Institute for Justice, uh, after losing the case, um, there are now 43 states that legislatively have reined in the use of eminent domain for purposes of economic development. And therein, I think, lies two lessons. One is that uh, there's more than one way to win a case. So even though you lose in the Supreme Court, you can always go to a second court, the Court of Public Opinion. There was more outcry about the Kelo case than any case I can think of with the possible exception of Roe v. Wade. And as a result of that outcry, we had this legislative relief. <clears throat> now, of course, the states, the states can't override federal law, but the states have their own laws. And under state law, as a result of legislative relief, 43 states have reined in to one degree or another the use of eminent domain for economic uh, development. Uh, lesson number two, the states can always give you more protection for your rights than the federal government. The U.S. Constitution sets a floor, not a ceiling. The states can't go below what the U.S. Constitution offers, but they can go above. And in this case, 43 states, under their laws, they can't override federal law, but under their laws, they can offer more protection uh, for, economic, uh, for uh, property rights than did the U.S. Supreme Court under federal law. And then one other interesting fact, and that is that even though uh, Suzette Kilo's home was relocated, if you take a ride up in New London, Connecticut, uh, you won't find a Pfizer plant, you won't find the office buildings, you won't find the hotels, none of that materialized. Um, in fact, in November of 2009, Pfizer actually closed a nearby uh, facility, and today uh, the land where Mrs. Kilo's home uh, was is vacant. Uh, so much for uh, economic, economic uh, development. So to wrap this up, uh, in, a, in a free society, uh, we shouldn't have to ask the government for permission to participate in an election. Uh, we shouldn't be forced to buy health insurance. Uh, we shouldn't uh, bail out car companies. We shouldn't have to give up our private property for the use of other uh, private developers. Uh, those abuses can be minimized, but only if the court ensures that the legislative and the executive branches are bound by the chains uh, of the Constitution. And regrettably, the Supreme Court has occasionally uh, been derelict in fulfilling uh, that uh, obligation. So what do we do about it? Well, the way to restore constitutional government is to appoint judges who respect the core principles of the Constitution, and they are federalism, uh, separation of powers, individual liberty, and strictly limited uh, government. And the way to appoint those judges is to elect politicians who have the same, <clears throat> same values. Uh, at Cato, uh, we believe that uh, politicians and diapers uh, have at least one thing in common, and that is that they should both be changed regularly, uh, and probably for the same uh, reason. So uh, with that uh, uh, final piece of uh, advice. Uh, thanks for your time and attention, and I'd be happy to answer questions. Any questions? Oh, okay. We do this by mic. Good. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Dick Tracy. I'm from Vermont. 
on the uh, plane ride down here, I had occasion to sit next to a total stranger whose name was Russell Caswell, who owned a motel in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, which the government tried to take by a, uh, a thing they called civil forf forfeiture. I wonder if you would uh, speak to that phenomenon and abuse of power. The key case in the civil forfeiture area was a, a case in the 1990s called Bennis v. Michigan. Mrs. Bennis owned a car. Her husband took her car without consent, in fact, without her knowledge, picked up a prostitute, and had sexual relations in the car. He was caught. <clears throat> the police arrested Mr. Bennis, the prostitute, and the car. And Mrs. Bennis sought to get her car. And she was told that in the state of Michigan, it didn't matter that she didn't know about it. It didn't matter that it, she wouldn't have allowed the car to be used for that purpose, that in fact the car was taken without her consent. This car facilitated the commission of the crime and therefore could be forfeited. Now, there, there are three kinds of assets that can be forfeited. Uh, there are assets that are inherently illegal, like, for example, they're contraband, like uh, counterfeit plates. If I'm in the counterfeiting business and I get arrested, for sure the government can confiscate the counterfeit plates. There's no objection to that. There's also what's called ill-gotten gains. I take the counterfeit plates and I sell them to one of you for $1,000. I get arrested. The government's entitled to confiscate the $1,000. The third doctrine is the problem, and that's the so-called facilitation doctrine. Any asset that facilitates the commission of a crime can be seized, and the rules used to be, although they have been changed now, that there is no innocent owner defense. Even if the person who owned the asset didn't know it was being used, wouldn't have consented it to, to it being used, nonetheless, it could be confiscated. Now the rules have been changed. There is an innocent owner defense, but regrettably, the burden is still on the owner, not on the government. The owner has to prove. Uh, that they were innocent with respect to this. Ordinarily, in a criminal case, of course, the government has to prove that you're guilty. But this is a civil asset forfeiture. So the burden is still on the owner, and it's a horrible miscarriage of justice when this happens. Why does it happen? It happens because of our uh, unending war on drugs. Uh, police departments are typically underfunded. They need extra revenue. And here's a golden source of revenue. The police departments are entitled to keep the proceeds when these assets are sold or auctioned off. They keep the proceeds. And you can imagine the perverse incentives that that creates. I'm not suggesting that the police departments are corrupt in doing this. I am suggesting that there are perverse incentives in place, they are regrettable, and they will inevitably lead to excessive confiscation and forfeiture uh, of assets. This is another area of the law that does have to be uh, changed. Yes, sir. Good morning. Uh, Joe Sedata, Buffalo, New York. Uh, could you comment on the uh, uh, provision of public goods by the states? I know we've talked about the limitations on the federal government uh, with respect to enumerated powers, but uh, frequently we say, we hear people say, well, but of course children need to be educated. Uh, uh, people need to have some provision for their old age. The poor have to be taken care of. Uh, but it would seem that uh, there's a great deal of that that's left to the states. Well, if you're talking specifically about eminent domain uh, to, to uh, take assets by the states taking assets under eminent domain. Well, not necessarily. I'm talking more about the initial uh, 
parts of your your conversation with us about the limitation okay. of government power. Got you. And the federal government is constrained by the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution, as I indicated, says there are only a certain number of enumerated powers. That's what the government can exercise. Any, any power that's not listed in the Constitution, the federal government's not supposed to exercise. That same constraint does not exist with regard to the states. The states have what's called a police power. The federal government doesn't possess a police power. The police power extends to the protection of health, safety, welfare. Some would extend it to cover morals as well. That police power is only subject to state laws and state constitutions. Now, that's the way it was for a long time. And it's still pretty much that way. But we did find out in the first 70 years or so of our existence that the states can be just as tyrannical as the feds. Of course, slavery was the case in point. So we fought a civil war and we passed some amendments after the Civil War, one of which was the 14th Amendment. The whole structure of federalism, this division of authority between the federal and state government, was changed by the 14th Amendment. For the first time, the federal government, under the 14th Amendment, was given the power to step in and stop the states from violating our rights. The 14th Amendment says no state shall deny equal protection of laws, due process, privileges, or immunities of citizens. No state. So whereas the original framework for federalism was enumerated powers, the 14th Amendment added a new power for the federal government. And that is, if the federal government detected a systematic deprivation of rights, then under the 14th Amendment, the federal government, either the Congress or the courts, could step in and stop that. So the real question in the cases that you represent is whether or not the state governments, in exercising their police power, have systematically violated one of the rights that's guaranteed by the federal constitution. That was the issue, for example, in the same-sex marriage case in California. Did the state violate the rights of its citizens when it stepped in and stopped, <clears throat> through Proposition 8, stopped uh, same-sex couples from getting married? If it did, the federal government could step in and put a stop to that. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Mike Conger. I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. Mike. And would like to ask, even though I'm a lawyer, a non-legal question. That concerns labels. Labels? Conservatives, liberals, and there's this new term, and of course we generally know what conservatives and, lab and liberals are, but I think there's this revitalization, resuscitation of this old term, progressives. And if you would comment a little and educate me on what is a progressive which even Obama describes himself as. Well, of course, uh, there's a great deal of uh, murkiness surrounding these uh, terms. Um, there's some interesting research by David Bowes of Cato and David Kirby about the public's identification of themselves with these various labels that I, it's on our website and I encourage you to look at. Progressives, I think most uh, folks would say, are to modern liberals. Why do they need a separate uh, term to describe themselves? Probably for two reasons. Uh, one is that there was uh, some confusion uh, with respect to the old, the, the term that they were using, namely liberals, some confusion between those liberals and what we call classical liberals of the uh, John Locke uh, variety, classical liberals much closer to today's uh, libertarians. And so to avoid that kind of confusion, uh, the modern liberals changed their, uh, 
their characterization to, uh, to progressives and no longer to be confused with uh, classical uh, liberals. Uh, the second reason I think they did that is because uh, liberals were being roundly defeated at the polls. And there were some uh, um, uh, negative uh, implications of identifying yourself as a liberal, and so they found another term to uh, basically mean the same thing, and that is progressives. Now, we had the same thing on our side because um, libertarians uh, at the Cato Institute sometimes were identified uh, with the Libertarian Party. And while we agree here at Cato on a number of, uh, on maybe most things with respect to the Libertarian Party, the Libertarian Party's goals are get people elected and engage in a grassroots advocacy. That's not our goal here at all. Our goal here is an educational mission a philosophic mission, providing intellectual ammunition to the people who are involved in grassroots uh, advocacy. So we didn't want to be confused with the Libertarian Party, and, and we wanted to call ourselves classical liberals. Uh, but of course, if we did, then there'd be the confusion of us as classical liberals with today's modern liberals. And so we had to adopt a different name. We tried a lot of them. We thought about using the name market liberals, and we decided nobody would know what the hell we were talking about. <laughs> So we ended up uh, sticking with a libertarian for want of a better term. But there is, as you note, uh, this confusion about all of these various terms, uh, particularly the term liberal. It's one tiny follow-up then. I'd read one point that progressives was a term applied to socialists many years ago. Am, am I incorrect about that? I well, <clears throat> I don't recall any such uh, tie between progressives and socialists. The progressive movement was the movement that unfolded in the early 1900s during the Roosevelt-Taft era. Uh, and that progressive movement laid the seeds uh, for the uh, New Deal under Roosevelt, and indeed laid the seeds at the Supreme Court for a progressive aggrandizement of federal power at the expense of individual liberties. But I don't believe that I've heard, at least, that the uh, progressives were necessarily uh, uh, synonymous with uh, socialists. Yes, sir. Kirk Hansen from Toronto, pardon me. In Canada, and I believe in the US, one of the ways things get federalized is through the power of the purse. In Canada, at least, the federal government got into the healthcare business, which was constitutionally forbidden, by saying we'll give money to provinces who do it the way we'd like them to do it. I have the impression that with speed limits, drinking age, and so on, the US has something similar. Does this, A, am I just wrong, and B, if I'm right, does this raise any new issues compared to the ones that you were discussing earlier? You are right. Uh, there is something similar in the U.S. Yes, it does raise new issues, and those issues, interestingly, were also addressed by the Obamacare case. By the way, if you want a real uh, one-stop lesson in constitutional law, read the Obamacare opinion by Chief Justice Roberts. It covered one heck of a lot of bases. So this is called conditional spending, and it goes like this. And the U.S. Constitution gives the federal government certain powers. They're supposed to be limited to those powers. Suppose the federal government wants to do something in excess of those powers, like tell the state of South Dakota that they have to implement uh, not an 18-year-old, but a 21-year-old drinking age. There's nothing in the Constitution that gives the federal government the power to do that. So what do they do? They go to the state of South Dakota and say, uh, you don't have to implement a 21-year-old drinking age, but by the way, uh, if you don't, we're going to withhold 5% of your highway funds. This is called conditional spending. The federal government is authorized to spend money for highways. 
it's not authorized to raise the drinking age in South Dakota. So the federal government tries to combine those two things and tells the state of South Dakota, uh, we're, we want you to raise the drinking age. It's up to you, but you're going to lose some of your highway funds if you don't. The Supreme Court addressed that in South Dakota versus Dole, a case back in the 1950s. And the Supreme Court said that this kind of conditional spending was okay. And effectively, it gives the Congress the ability to do things that it's not entitled to do otherwise. And the only thing that the Supreme Court said, the only real, there were a number of qualifications, but the only real qualification was there has to be some linkage between the restriction that's imposed and the goal of the spending. So ask yourself, what's the linkage between the 21-year-old drinking age and highway funds? Well, believe it or not, the Supreme Court found the link. They said, here's what happens if you don't raise your drinking age. Kids in South Dakota who are under the age of 21 are going to go to a, uh, <clears throat> are going to drink. Well, people are going to come into your state and drink. They're going to drink. They're going to get drunk. They're going to drive. We want our highway expenditures to be funding safe highways. And so we can't have people drinking that make those highways more risky. That's the linkage between raising the drinking age and highway funds. Well, if there's that linkage, then you can imagine there's really nothing that would be thrown out for lack of a link. And since that case, not a single program by the federal government was ever invalidated because it exceeded Congress's power to impose conditions on the receipt of expenditures until Obamacare. And as you recall, the Obama administration wanted to force the states to expand their Medicaid programs. Now, they're not allowed to force the states to expand their Medicaid programs. So what did the administration say? They said, look, you can expand your Medicaid programs or not. It's up to you. By the way, you're going to lose all your Medicaid funding if you don't. And this went to the Supreme Court. And what Justice Roberts said was, we're going to impose one more condition on this exercise of the spending power. And that is, it may not effectively be so coercive that it eliminates all options for the states. So maybe it was okay in South Dakota v. Dole because there you said, if you don't raise the drinking age, we're going to deprive you of 5% of your highway funds. That wasn't really coercive. But here, Medicaid pays anywhere from 50 to 80, I mean, federal government pays anywhere from 50 to 80% of the Medicaid bills. And so to tell the states that if they don't expand their Medicaid programs, they're going to lose not just the funds for the expansion, but all Medicaid uh, funding, billions and billions of dollars, and effectively make the state Medicaid programs dysfunctional. That, said Justice Roberts, <clears throat> along with six other justices, that's coercive. And therefore, we're not going to allow it. So we finally have a, a viable limit on the exercise of the spending power, and that is the option may not be so coercive as to deny a real choice. Yes, sir. Yes, thank you. Um, I had the uh, very nice privilege, and I feel bad because I think it was off the record, so this is also off the record. Um, but I had the nice privilege of hearing Justice Scalia speak one time. And he talked about how, uh, as you mentioned, the founders were very bright people, and they made a very nice constitution. But he said what they actually promised you really wasn't that great. So this was off the record now that I remember. So it's still off the record. <laughs> um, but he said it really wasn't that great. And you look at the Soviet uh, Bill of Rights and them, and now that's a great Bill of Rights. And this was his general point. And he said the reason we're the freest country in the world is because of the structure of the government. You know, and I was wondering, because a line that you said really stuck out to me about how the states will, will protect us very well. Well, 
the states are a lot, lot, lot weaker than they are, and not just because of the Civil War, but uh, it used to be that state legislatures elected senators, you know, and that was obviously changed. And then, you know, it, it's still supposed to be that state legislatures pick how the president's selected, and that really doesn't work. I was wondering uh, if you could talk a little bit about how the you know, states being diminished in power have sort of uh, messed with the two levels of protection from government, uh, which was originally intended by very bright people. Well, as I mentioned to you, the, the, by the way, you, if you've been reading the paper, you know that there's absolutely nothing is off the record anymore. Yeah. <laughs> the NSA is listening to everything that you are saying and every word that I'm saying in response. Uh, <clears throat> the, the mix between federal and state power was originally governed by the 10th Amendment. Um, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law and say anything about the states, so the states could do what they want, but that all changed with the uh, 14th Amendment. Now, some people are concerned that the states uh, don't exercise sufficient check and balance against uh, the federal government, particularly since the 17th Amendment, which basically uh, popularized the voting for senators instead of having senators elected by uh, state legislatures. And there's, I think, a legitimate concern there. Uh, Randy Barnett, who's a, a colleague of ours here at the Cato Institute, who teaches law at uh, Georgetown University, has proposed what he calls the repeal amendment. The repeal amendment would allow two-thirds of the states to repeal any federal law. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. And uh, I will have an article in the, in the September issue of the Cato Policy uh, report, which basically is, is the title of the article is Toward a Better Constitution, where I've asked folks here at Cato, uh, if you had it to do all over again, what changes would you make? Um, by the way, our standard answer to that is that we would just <clears throat> leave everything alone, but we would add five words at the end, and the five words would be, and we really mean it. <laughs> but, but here in this article, we've gone a bit further, and we've identified those changes that we would make to the Constitution. And one of those changes is to allow the states through one means or another, whether it's a repeal amendment or, or some other version of that, uh, the states to be able to vote to repeal uh, federal laws. Not any one state, that would be nullification. I'm not talking about nullification. I'm talking about an aggregate of a supermajority of states that would be able to vote to repeal a federal law or a federal administrative uh, regulation. It would be a step in the right direction. It would restore some power to the states that you properly, I think, identify as being a problem now. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi, uh, I have a question regarding the bifurcation of rights. Uh, so specifically, there are you know, certain rights that are subject to strict scrutiny, uh, for example, you know, freedom to speech, uh, et cetera, and there are others that are only subject to a rational basis test. Uh, and I was talking to uh, John Lott, Jr., a uh, professor at Chicago, about gun rights uh, a few weeks ago, and he, an interesting uh, example came up in which the Supreme Court has you know, ruled that even placing a one cent tax on a newspaper, right, is, uh, or is it unconstitutional because you're, the power to tax is the power to destroy and you can't destroy a fundamental right um, as granted uh, by the Bill of Rights, uh, such as freedom to speech. But why is it that the government uh, can impose basically fees and other, you know, licensing fees and other ways to uh, make the cost of obtaining a firearm uh, hundreds of dollars and when they say even a one cent tax on newspapers is unconstitutional? Well, a couple of things. First, uh, the right to bear arms is now deemed to be a fundamental right. Uh, the Supreme Court said so in the Heller case in which Tom and I were involved and also in McDonald versus Chicago, which was two years after Heller, 2010, uh, overturning the uh, 
the gun ban in Chicago. So we do know now that the right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental right. Now, what does that mean? As you probably say, our rights have been bifurcated. It all happened back in 1938 in a case called U.S. versus Caroline Products with a single footnote. If you went to law school, you, you've always studied the infamous footnote four, which said that if the rights are enumerated in the Bill of Rights or if they're protection of discrete and insular minorities or if they're connected with voting, then we're going to strictly scrutinize them, we on the court. But if there are any of the other rights, they're not going to be fundamental, and we're going to deal with them rational basis, which basically is the courts will rubber stamp whatever the legislature has done. So it's really key as to whether a right is deemed to be fundamental. What does it mean to be fundamental? It's a term of art. And the term of art, the definition is, to be fundamental, the right has to be implicit in the concept of ordered liberty and or deeply rooted in our nation's traditions and culture. Now, very quickly now, because I know I only have a couple of minutes, um, I want to illustrate the incoherence of this doctrine with two cases. The first case is Raich versus Gonzalez. This is medical marijuana in California. Mrs. Raich uh, was sick. She found that marijuana relieved her pain. This wasn't about whether she was right or wrong. This was about whether she had the right to take medical marijuana. It's legal in California. She had a doctor's order to do it. The DEA came in and said, you can't do it. You're violating the Controlled Substances Act. Mrs. Ray says, I have a fundamental right. The court took a look at it and said, no, you don't have a fundamental right. Mrs. Ray characterized the right as the right to take into her body what she wished in order to reduce pain and live a more fruitful life. The court, the court characterized the right as the right to smoke medical marijuana and said, the right to smoke medical marijuana is not implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, not deeply rooted in our nation's traditions. Therefore, Mrs. Race loses. Now, consider a different case, Lawrence versus Texas involving sodomy in the state of Texas. Texas had a law that prohibited sodomy, consensual sex between persons of the same sex in the privacy of a home. Mr. Lawrence is prosecuted under the law. He says, you're violating my fundamental right. Nobody's being injured. This is consensual. We did it in the privacy of our own home. Nobody even saw us. You can't deny that fundamental right. The state of Texas says, this is not a right about to engage in private consensual acts. This is about the right to have gay sex. Gay sex is not implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. It's not deeply rooted in our nation's traditions. The court took a look at it and said, Mr. Lawrence wins. So how can Mr. Lawrence win and Ms. Raich lose? And the answer is nobody has the foggiest idea. <laughs> nobody knows. Because they're both, you know, Mr. Lawrence is engaged in gay sex. He's also doing something in the privacy of his own home. Consensual, nobody's being injured. Ms. Raich is, is smoking, uh, is taking medical marijuana. Uh, she's, she's also engaged in a private act, uh, again, injuring no one, intended to alleviate uh, pain. So this bifurcation of our rights is ridiculous. And what it means is that we need to move, and we are trying to move, uh, toward a regime where all violations of rights are strictly scrutinized, whether they're enumerated rights or unenumerated rights, whether they're fundamental rights or non-fundamental rights. The job of the judiciary is to hold the feet of the legislature and the executive branch to the fire to restore uh, constitutional government. So thank you all very much. Thank you.